fill your belly. Day and night make merry. Let days be full of joy. Dance and make music day and night. These things alone are the concern of men. Now, this is not the end of some cheesy holiday movie, as you might expect. This was actually written in Mesopotamia around 4,000 years ago, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the oldest surviving works of human literature. Shortly after that, in Egypt, these words were put to song. Follow your desire as long as you live. Set an increase to your good things. Follow your desire and your good. Fulfill your needs upon the earth after the command of your heart. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristippus proposed that the only intrinsic good is pleasure which not only included the absence of pain, but also the abundance of enjoyable sensations. Forms of these teachings, the oldest man, have continued to endure and flourish throughout history. The Roman Empire is often seen as the prototype of, of living out this culturally pursuit of happiness, of pleasure, in the 1800s, John Stuart Mill promoted doing whatever maximizes pleasure in life. There is truly nothing new under the sun. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Now, that's just one example of hundreds I could give you, uh, I could have used, to show that our world today is all about elevating happiness and pleasure to supreme status. Do you know that this pursuit of pleasure actually forms the contours of a common worldview? It does. It's called hedonism. Hedonism, which in Greek literally means pleasureism. The, the dictionary defines hedonism as the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of the satisfaction of desires, is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. Hedonism contains elements you'll see today of individualism, consumerism, relativism, naturalism, many of these things we've studied. But I believe hedonism is a worldview in and of its own right. It clearly acts as a worldview, as a way to see reality in the world around us, as a heart orientation, and a sneaky one at that. Because... Most people don't even realize that they're adopting it. Hedonism distinctly shapes and casts shadows over the way we live. And I say the way we live because hedonism is so rampant in our culture that I suspect that it has taken some root in nearly every single one of our lives. So let's have... God, examine our hearts, shall we? To open our eyes to 
true reality, according to him, and to open our eyes to, to see how this alien worldview has maybe crept into our lives. Do you pray with me for this? Heavenly Father, we do pray that if there are blinders over our eyes, that you would remove them today. If we are dead in our sin, that you would raise us to life. If we are lost, that you would find us. And if we are truly followers of you, that you would eradicate any other rival God in our hearts. Help us to follow you. Enable us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of this series, I compared worldviews to glasses that we wear. Remember that? The, like a pair of sunglasses that would impact or alter the way we see things around us? Sometimes when I wear sunglasses, for a long period of time, I forget that I'm wearing them. Right? It's maybe after a long drive or I've been out in the yard for a long time and I, I walk inside the house and all of a sudden everything gets really dark. And it's like, whoa. And then I realize what I'm wearing and I pull them off. I forget that they're there. I forget that they're impacting the way I see them until I walk inside. Well, the worldview of hedonism is so ingrained in us, we don't even usually realize it's there. Hedonism is definitely not a worldview that we consciously choose to have. It surrounds us, it rubs off on us, and we simply begin to assume it. We don't think, listen, I am going to go all out after pleasure in my life. We just do it. Well, I want us to walk inside the house today. To do so, let's begin to identify the key features of hedonism so we can identify it in us. Here are the eight key questions we've looked at for every worldview. Number one, what underlies reality? What is the ultimate foundation of hedonism? When you boil it right down, hedonism is the pursuit of my pleasure, which therefore makes me and my desires or urges or impulses the foundation of life. It's one form of placing ourselves at the center of the universe. Number two, what is real? So what kind of convictions does hedonism hold about reality? Perhaps the most important idea is the idea that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Like we saw, the, the highest good and proper aim. Sure, other things may matter, but nothing matters as much as how we feel. Rick Warren says, do what feels good. This is hedonism. The belief that the most important thing in life is how we feel. The number one goal of a hedonist is to feel good. Be comfortable and have fun. Number three, who are we? How does hedonism define our identity as humans? Well, hedonism doesn't deny that we are multidimensional beings with a variety of needs. But it tends to put the emphasis on our physical nature. 
We are physical beings. We may or may not have a spirit, but we obviously have bodies. We are bodies, and our bodies have a number of inherent needs and desires which we instinctively want to meet. And we spend vast amount of time and money doing so. This all leads to a tendency, though, to define ourselves by our desires. We define ourselves by our desires. Or sometimes I should say our orientations. We desire our men or our women this way. This is what makes us happiest. Or, I am a foodie. (laughs) I am a druggie. I'm a movie junkie. I'm a music groupie. I am a partier or a party animal. I am an alcoholic. I'm an addict. The list could go on. Define ourselves by our desires. Number four, what is true? So from where do we get knowledge? Really, wherever we want to. Whatever makes us feel good, whatever makes us happy. Happiness is the truth. Right? The logic here is that the only thing that we can really know with certainty, the only things we can know are our immediate sense perceptions and sense experiences. And since everyone's experiences are different, then whatever can be known is different for everyone. You can see how relativism sneaks in here, the subjective truth under hedonism. Number five, what is good? about morality, what's good and evil, right and wrong. Well, human pleasure, we saw, is seen as the highest good. Okay? Human pleasure. Aristippus said that an act is good and therefore virtuous insofar as it gives present satisfaction. So, you have the right to do everything you can in order to gain the most pleasure possible. As long as... It doesn't hurt anyone else. At least most hedonists would make that distinction. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, anything goes. Michael Onfray says, Hedonism is an introspective attitude to life based on taking pleasure yourself and pleasuring others without harming yourself or anyone else. This would be why consent is such an important concept in today's world. But why would hedonists say to not harm anyone else in your pursuit of happiness? Because if pleasure is the highest good, then the opposite of pleasure must be the lowest evil. Therefore, suffering and pain are seen as the absolute worst things in existence. If something causes pain or suffering or discomfort in any way, it has to be wrong. So no matter what you do, you shouldn't harm yourself or anyone else. Number six, what is important or what are the values of hedonism? We've already seen many of them, right? Pleasure, happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment, entertainment, amusement, fun. Along with the freedom that's required to pursue all these things. 
And on the flip side of the coin, the absence of pain is also highly valued, which means health and well-being and vitality are treasured. Number seven, what is wrong with our world? What's fallen in need of fixing? Simple, we don't have enough pleasure. (laughs) Or we have too much pain. Hey, we, we seemingly can never be fully satisfied. Our desires are insatiable. The Rolling Stones have been singing, I can't get no satisfaction for over 50 years now. <laughs> and boy, is there ever way too much hurt in our world, personally and globally. It's like I have way too many painful experiences in my own life. And if I look outside and see other sufferings as well, it's overwhelming. So what can be done? How does hedonism offer a route to salvation? Well, it's all about continuing to pursue pleasure, to satisfy ourselves as much as humanly possible. Absolute pleasure may be a delusion, but maximum pleasure is a possibility. Do you get that? Absolute pleasure may be a delusion, but maximum pleasure is a possibility. If you have the, the best food and the best drink, the best lovers, the best sex, the best holidays, the best entertainment, the best mattresses, the best couches, the best TVs, the best phones, the best headphones, you can maximize your pleasure. Ultimately, though, it's about striking a balance, a good balance of pleasure. A lot of it, but not too much. Because most this will actually tell you, they'll admit that you can have too much of a good thing. And this refers to what has been called the paradox of hedonism. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. He says, a basic problem with hedonism is that in striving to achieve pleasure, you may actually find what you most want to avoid, pain. If you reach too far in the pursuit of pleasure, you might fail and be frustrated, which is painful. Thoughtful hedonists then have pursued pleasure, but not too much in order to avoid the negative consequences of failure. So salvation then is found in this delicate balance. But with suffering, there's no balance there. Right? We should seek to eliminate suffering at all There are groups today that are calling for the abolition of suffering in all life forms through the advance of the use of advanced technology. I just say good luck with that. But but think about it. If pain is the ultimate worst thing, then shouldn't that indeed be our goal? Shouldn't we be seeking? The abolition of suffering in all life forms. Hedonism says we essentially find salvation by maximizing pleasure and by minimizing pain. That's in a nutshell. Now, has hedonism impacted our culture today? Is it present here in Ottawa? Is it ever? Right? Hedonism has drastically impacted our world. Look no further than the excessive amount of hours we burn watching Netflix. Look no further than the pervasive so-called hookup culture 
which makes sex for fun and no strings attached sex the norms. Look no further than the glut of food and drink options we have available to us 24-7. Look no further than the, the rising popularity, again, of smoking or other drug use. Look no further than the millions of people living for retirement or vacations. Look no further than the billions of dollars that Hollywood rakes in every year. Look no further than the way we kill the unborn or the infirm for the sake of comfort. Look no further than the rash of bulimic binging and purging among youth. Or the multitude of guys spending all their time on video games. Or the immense popularity of of amusement parks or theme parks. Or the tragic epidemic of pornography. Not to sound like a prude, but drunkenness and debauchery are everywhere around us. We play constantly. We read frivolously. We watch continuously. We spend liberally. We consume excessively. And we love fleetingly. We are all about doing whatever feels good whenever it feels good. They might go, Pastor Matt, you have just described some of my friends or family members perfectly. (laughs) Maybe that's true. But what about you? Most of us are probably like, well, that description, that's not me. Right? You might not be able to check off, check off every eight boxes there. But I think that our actions may speak much louder than our thoughts or our words here. I was personally convicted when I realized how often I would ask my kids, Did you have fun today? Did you have fun today? As if that was the most important thing that could have happened to them. Christians are not immune to any of the the vices that I just mentioned a moment ago. And in many cases, we are blatantly guilty of them. We like our TV shows and video games just as much as anyone else. We enjoy food and drink a little too excessively at times. We squirrel away money for our pleasures with the best of them. And what we do behind closed doors is no one else's business. I think most of us also feel the hedonistic urge to avoid getting hurt at all costs. Avoid pain at all costs. I mean, pain might make us doubt. Or rejection might halt our witnessing for the Lord. Or or persecution just freaks us out. Within the church at large, hedonism has led to some really faulty mindsets. Such as the trend to have, to have to make worship services hip or fun. Or the need to have our preachers be entertainers more than proclaimers of truth. 
or the invasive name-it-claim-it theology which promises to meet all of our desires. Now, with all I've said so far, you may think I'm really down on hedonism. I mean, talk about a selfish, sensual, misguided, short-sighted worldview. But if I've given you the impression that hedonism is all bad, I've misled you. Because hedonism taps into a very true, very good, God-given tendency of ours. There is one really good aspect of hedonism, and it might surprise you. It's this. We should seek satisfaction because God made us that way. We were created to seek fulfillment. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with seeking it out. The fact is we should seek satisfaction because God made us that way. You may remember the passage we studied recently from 1 Timothy 6. If you turn to page 994, if you're using the Pew Bible, you can see it for yourself. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 just says this. As for the rich in this present age, that's most of us, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, catch this, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I mean, think about it. God created our five senses. Okay? He made us to experience emotions and feelings. He put the nerve endings and the retinas and the eardrums and the taste buds in our bodies so we could enjoy life. In Genesis 1, he told man... Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God clearly wanted us to enjoy his very good creation. However, Why do you know the rest of the story? Our desires have been terribly corrupted ever since the fall. In Genesis 3, when when Eve saw the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes to be desired, and then the devil persuaded us that our passions were more important than God himself. And our God-given desires were twisted into disobedience and then disaster. Our problem ever since that is that our hearts go astray so easily. Our hearts are idle factories. And we tend to take the gifts that God gives us and essentially make them into our gods. Imagine if this Christmas you gave me a gift. Okay, and I don't know, say it's a box of chocolates. Right? You gave me a box of chocolates, and I took this gift home, I unwrapped it. Wow! I love chocolate! That's so great! 
But not once did I consider who gave me the gift. You never crossed my mind. It's like, imagine if I went, I looked at the box, thank you, chocolate, for coming into my life. (laughs) You are so sweet and delicious and satisfying. I love you, chocolate. (laughs) Now, would that be enjoying the gift the way it's supposed to be enjoyed? No, not at all, right? You'd obviously want me to enjoy the chocolate, otherwise you wouldn't have given it to me. But you'd want me to enjoy the chocolate and be mindful of you, thankful to you for giving it to me. This is our problem. We get so wrapped up in the gifts instead of being focused on the giver. We easily forget that God intended for us to seek satisfaction, to be satisfied, to enjoy life even. But he never intended for us to be completely fulfilled by his gifts. God's gifts were always meant to lead us to be satisfied with God himself. See, there is a self-indulgent even idolatrous kind of way to eat chocolate. But there's also a God-glorifying kind of way to eat chocolate. Or to watch a movie. Or to make love. Or to play a game. Or to drink a root beer. Most of it, the the difference between the the self-indulgent, idolatrous way and the God-glorifying kind of way, most of it comes down to our heart's focus and attitudes, our gratitude. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In Scripture, God often actually appeals. If you go through the Bible, God often appeals to our desires in order to move us toward himself. You may be familiar with C.S. Lewis's famous words on this. It says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that God promises us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In recent times, John Piper has coined the term Christian hedonism in his book, Desiring God, where he proposes that delighting in God is the work of our lives and that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The the label there, Christian hedonism, may sound startling, but it's built on truths like these. He says that the longing to be happy is a universal human experience and it is good, not sinful, that we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. And that the deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God, so that the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of all worship and virtue, that is, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. 
You may think that first point I gave you, that, that we should seek satisfaction because God made us that way, it, it sounds dangerous to you. Because it, it could lead us down a path of unbridled indulgence. But this point is as far as the similarities go between worldly hedonism and Christian hedonism. And where they differ can be clearly seen in the final two points I'll give you today. So, we should seek satisfaction because God made us that way. But, not in ourselves, for ourselves, or through ourselves. We should seek satisfaction in life, fulfillment, but not in ourselves, for ourselves, or through ourselves. Of all the places we tend to look for satisfaction, is there any as delusional as hedonistically thinking we can find it in ourselves? I mean, our lives are so short. Our bodies are so fragile. Our feelings of happiness are so fleeting and unstable. Our hunger or thirst or other physical drives we have are only ever temporarily quenched. And our pursuit of pleasure often does inevitably lead to pain. Side note, this isn't even delving into the point that sometimes pain is a really good thing. From warning us of danger, to exercising, to medical operations, to sanctification. But here's the thing. Worldly hedonism isn't just illogical or reductionistic or nearsighted. Let's call it what it is. Sin. It is idolatrous treason against our jealous God. When we indulge our passions just for the sake of indulging our passions, it is sin. Flip forward in your Bibles approximately two pages, maybe three pages, to Titus 3. Titus 3. Listen to what Paul says here. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, this is obviously not good, right? We were once this. This is who we were before Christ comes into our lives, that we were enslaved to our various passions and pleasures. Or turn back to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. If you're using one of those pew Bibles, that's on page 948. We'll be here for a couple minutes, so turn there if you can. Romans 13. Starting in verse 11. Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What's the sin here in this passage? It's at the end there. It's gratifying our desires. Gratifying our desires through sexual sins and drunkenness and sensuality and the like. Hedonism would tell us that all of these things are acceptable, even harmless. But God says, no! These are what he calls walking in darkness, improper. Look at verse 12. says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in these ways. You notice in this passage, though, how we are called to fight this sinful hedonism in our lives? How do we do it? It's really by experiencing Jesus' salvation and making him the absolute Lord of our life. Notice the commands here. It says, we need to wake up. Right? Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Reality check. It's like we're asleep in our sin, unaware of where it's leading us. And then God comes and shakes us from our slumber, saying in verse 12, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The day has come. Because God's Son has risen from the dead. He died, came back to life. It's a new day. Therefore, we must repent. Radically turning from our sins. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, which sets us on this trajectory of living in the light, living properly in verse 13. But I think the key comes in verse 14. As we cast off our sins, we put on Christ. Look with me, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's like we're changing the clothes we're wearing. Tearing off our dirty clothes, our sinful clothes, and clothing ourselves with Christ's righteousness, Christ's purity, Christ's holiness. See, we must replace our evil desires with good ones, or else we'll fall right back into them. And the most supreme desire we can have is for our Savior. We've got to put on Christ. So we must believe in Him, pursue Him, love Him, worship Him. 1 Corinthians 15 says something similar to this passage in Romans, but it adds something to the equation. It says this, that if, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we might as well be hedonists. Okay? But the fact is, 
Christ has been raised from the dead, which changes everything. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15 says, If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. You've never done this. You've never taken action here. Cast off your sins and put on Christ. Let God wake you up today. Wake up. Repent. Believe. And let Jesus begin to realign your heart's desires. If we continue to live for our own pleasure and not for God's glory and pleasure, we will simply continue to set up idols as rival gods in our hearts. We'll just keep doing it. John Piper says this, Christian hedonism does not make a God out of pleasure. It says you have already made a God out of whatever you take most pleasure in. So what is your pleasure in? Is it in ourselves? Does it come for ourselves or through ourselves? If so, we are essentially our own gods. Or we've made gods out of all our pursuits. And outside of insulting and affronting the one true God, what's the biggest problem here? So these idols we set up for ourselves will always disappoint us. They will always fall short of what we expect them to be. We are not God. Food and drink cannot fill his throne. Riches disappear. Sex leaves us wanting more. Entertainment cannot save us. Fun cannot satisfy. Tim Keller says, This cosmic disappointment and disillusionment is there in all of life, but we especially feel it in the things upon which we most set our hopes. Yes, we should seek satisfaction, because God made us that way. But not in ourselves, for ourselves, or through ourselves. And why not? Because nothing outside of our eternal Savior will ever fully satisfy us. We should seek satisfaction not in ourselves, but in Christ. Because nothing outside of Him, nothing outside of our eternal Savior will ever fully satisfy us. Nothing else satisfies. Here are some ways God puts it in His Word. In Jesus' parable of the rich guy who hoarded things in his barns, the man said this, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. There's hedonism right there. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, might as well say pleasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Proverbs 21.17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Pleasure cannot deliver. And it often backfires on us. As the message paraphrases this verse, Are you addicted to thrills? 
What an empty life. The pursuit of pleasure is never satisfied. Turn over, if you would, to Ecclesiastes 2. I want you to see this one. Ecclesiastes 2. Right in the middle of the Old Testament, page 553. Here, Solomon explores how meaningless, self-indulgent pleasure ultimately is. Ecclesiastes 2, right at the beginning, verse 1. It says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity or meaningless. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart to how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And then in the next few verses, he describes the many ways that he sought pleasure in his life. Sought all these things. In verse 9, skip down, it says, So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I seized every pleasure, basically. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold... All was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You know, he eventually decides the only thing that matters. The end of the book says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fearing God is what matters. Obeying his commands is of vital importance. And, contrary to what you might expect, those things are not killjoys or burdensome. These are meant to bring joy, delight, And yes, even pleasure. Because Christ satisfies us in ways the pleasures of this world can never hold a candle to. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Remember Philippians 1? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is no worldly hedonism. Because following Christ may involve pain. Even death. Jesus said to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. But let me promise you something. Eternity will redeem Every ounce of pain you feel along the way. 
The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Eternity will redeem every ounce of pain you feel in this life. And eternity is coming. Be forewarned by Peter in in 1 Peter 4. Just listen. He says this. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We will all give an account one day. And our worldviews, our heart orientations matter. R.C. Sproul says, Hedonism tends to say that the only pleasure worth having is sensual in nature. It is ultimately a futile pursuit. We are made to have a relationship with an infinite being, and therefore nothing finite can satisfy us permanently. Jesus alone can complete us. As we pursue him, Christ satisfies us and will both now and in eternity bring us to deeper levels of pleasure in But what does this look like now? How can we be satisfied in Christ today? Again, it comes down to our hearts. We need to get our desires facing in the right direction to eternity. And as we experience pleasures on earth now, to turn them into praise. Getting our, our desires facing the right direction. We also need to carefully get our desires in the right proportion. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, All things are lawful or permissible for me, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And this will look different for everyone, depending on many factors. But if we are enslaved, by some pleasure, we have to repent. Reorient our heart. And then we need to seek to find joy, true joy in the pursuit of Christ. Realize the enjoyment He can give you along the way in pursuing Him through worship and prayer and fellowship and the many blessings He pours out in our life intending for us to enjoy and fix your heart's affections on these things and on eternity. One last passage I want to take you to today. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55, that's page 615. I want you to realize... The invitation is open to you today. The best party is waiting. The best food and drink 
can be had and for free. The best pleasures, which will last forever, are offered to you. This is the Lord speaking in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Listen to this. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. And where are all these pleasures found? Incline your ear and come to me. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And then look down to verse 6. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He'll abundantly pardon. These beautiful words were ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. So what this tells me is that if you've gone astray, if your heart has gone astray over other gods, other pleasures, you can return, even today. That God has compassion and he abundantly pardons And then as we seek him, he can completely and eternally satisfy us with himself. So let's all come thirsty to the waters. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, May our hearts truly see the bankruptcy, the delusion of pursuing all these things for ourselves. May we see that you are the only one that satisfies. Help us understand what that means in each and every one of our lives, what it means to repent and to believe, to follow you today. Help us take up our crosses. Help us enjoy our life and give you the glory for it. God, we rely on you. You, we need you. You are the only one that can satisfy us. We thank you for sending us the living bread, the living water in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.